Today, we welcome SpecPack as a Q4 sponsor. With the holiday cycle fast approaching, we never know what the fraudster's next scheme will be. With Spec and their patented no-code orchestration platform, you can be ready for them this season with full coverage and visibility into the entire customer journey with the ability to collect data, deploy in any tech stack, and connect to any solution to answer their attacks, such as calling third-party APIs, building logic and workflows, all with the ability to take action anywhere in the entire customer journey. Visit www.specprotected.com to learn more and schedule a demo to make your holidays a little more jolly. Everybody, welcome to another episode of the Fraud Boxer Podcast. I have uh, promised some heavy hitters coming into the fall, and I think I have the heaviest hitter of them all. I have Kim Sutherland from LexisNexis Risk Solutions here today. How are you doing? I'm great, and thank you, Jordan, for saying that. <laughs> I mean, you don't do you not recognize how much of a of a heavy hitter of, a, of, a, of an influencer you are in our industry? Like, you're kind of a big deal, just a little bit. <laughs> It's just because I'm old, but thank you very much. You know, I think it's because a long you time. know, I think you know your stuff, you know, multiple sides of this transaction, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, so obviously LexisNexis, they have quite the risk portfolio with the acquisition of threat metrics, emailage. And I think, you know, for people that are, that are a little more finger on the pulse, they know the behavior sec. Uh, has that, how do we say that? How do we say that exactly? Is it behavior sec? Oh, you said it exactly right. Behavior sec. Perfect. Now, I think people might not be as familiar with that, and we will talk about that one today. But I think what we really want to get into today is these this buzzword of biometrics. Mm. And that's where we were really going to start. So um, first of all, before we jump right into it, like, how are you? What's new with you? Let's talk about you as a person before we jump into the actual content here, if we could. Well, gee, thanks. I'm great. Um about to go on vacation, which is a very rare thing for me because our fraud and identity business never stops and it continues to grow, which is a wonderful thing. But at the same time, no one in our industry gets many breaks. So so fun. I am trying to be a great aunt and I'm taking my seven-year-old niece and 11-year-old nephew to Disney. Like the, the Florida one or the one over here? The Florida one. Okay. Which, I mean, I guess August uh, is not a good time for that. <laughs> but <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people are going back to school, you know, so maybe you'll get a little bit there, but. Well, that's what I did for timing. So, so I'm, I'm very much into planning. I'm also, in, so we're from a, per, a professional standpoint, 2024 planning, but I'm a planner in my family as well. So I picked the weekend that I, or the week that I thought was going to have the least activity before they went back to school. Excellent. I am a uh, big Disney fan. I actually, because I, I only live a few miles from Disneyland over here on the West Coast, mm-hmm. uh, I do have an annual pass and I go fairly regularly, sometimes multiple times a week. Right now it's a little different with the, uh, with kind of the lockout dates for the end of summer, but uh, it's just, it's a lot of fun. Like, I'm learning um, new things about you. You go multiple times a week. Yeah, so, sometimes, sometimes, you know, and it's great because like my staff, they like to go too, and uh, we can totally like, just go there sometimes for team building and it all works out pretty well. <laughs> that doesn't fit with your the boxer part of your 
title and things because I thought we were going to spend time talking about the fact that I love boxing. I was going to transition to that. And very nice. You do. So you love combat sports. Do you like regular boxing, boxing? Do you love USC? Like, what is it? Oh, I love, I don't know. I I love competition. Um, And I love uh, people doing, um, you know, fighting for their best. So boxing has just been one of those things. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky with uh, Muhammad Ali and all those kind of things. Um, I was very young at that point, but still, um, boxing has always been a critical, uh, a big piece of my life. So boxing and uh, UFC um, are big things that I love to do or love to watch. Do you watch like the WWE wrestling too? I don't like anything like that. So <laughs> it's got to be real. It has to be mm-hmm. actual something on the line here. Got it. There you go. See, see, we we all have surprising things, you know. <laughs> yes, I'm one of the few p- females that when I'm in in the ring in the arena watching, I look around and I see mainly guys, but there's some really diehard so, females that really like it too. So you'll travel to go to actually see this live. Absolutely. I wow. love watching it live events. So Vegas and I'm trying to go around to uh, uh, places out of the country right now. There was a, a great event in Australia recently for UFC. And I was like, I should have been there. Brazil, of course. You know, so yeah. yes, I love you. Yeah, that that would be cool. That'd be a lot of fun to go see those like in, in foreign countries. But they, they had like Fight Island there during COVID. Do they still have that? Do they still do anything out on the island? It was like outside of Dubai or something. I have never even heard of that. That's where like when they had the U.S. shut down and they were trying to do so they did like the UFC Apex Arena in Vegas, but they wouldn't let anybody in. And they would just have the fights with nobody there. But then so he started Dana White started hosting them on this Fight Island thing, which is like outside of like the UAE. um, And there were the restrictions were different. So he like he literally had an island. Uh, I'll send you the stuff after the after the show. It was it was super. (laughs) I think they only did like one big fight there, but it was. It was one of the big ones. It might be, it might have even been a McGregor one, maybe. Uh, but he's you know had a rough go the last few bouts of his. So somehow I missed that piece, but I'm very happy that now there's like people in in seats and that kind of thing again. Yeah. Although we know that COVID rates are increasing yet again. Yeah, that's what. Uh, it's pretty bad here in Orange County right now. It's like we're getting all like the notifications of telling people like suggesting people mask up again and. Uh, even at home, like we've had some scratchy throats and we were just like, we were just at like the Taylor Swift concert a couple of weeks ago. Then we did, we were, we went to, when we went to brunch, we actually took public transit up there. So like, we're just checking all the boxes for all the things to get COVID. So just, you know, trying to limit my, uh, for the next five days out where I go and, you know, be responsible enough, but I, I did get vaccine boosted and all that, but it's still it's still out there. I think like people did get that false sense of security that it was like it was all over with because like we just haven't been seeing people get as sick, but people still get sick. You know, even the RSV, I had RSV at the beginning of the year this year, and that was rough. That was one of the sickest I've ever been. So there's a lot of things out there still, people. That's right. So let's talk about LexisNexis, shall we? Yes. Could you give us a brief history of LexisNexis Risk Solutions and what it means, what it is, and then we'll jump right into biometrics and and scare everybody. (laughs) So LexisNexis Risk Solutions um, is a part of a larger company called Relics. Um, Our focus is around information and um, analytics um, to help with our name, Risk, um, help uh, all size enterprises um, and smaller businesses help in uh, being able to make better decisions from a standpoint of compliance, um, credit risk decisioning, 
Um, and then the area that I focus on, which is fraud. Um, I focus primarily on consumer fraud, but we also focus on business fraud as well. So I think a lot of the people that are probably listening to this have used you guys in some capacity multiple times. Like, I mean, a lot of us use email. I've used email at multiple companies. I've used threat metrics at multiple companies. There's also like other known, like kind of like smaller products that like probably aren't smaller to you guys, but like lesser known to probably a lot of people in our industry. Like one of those projects is is like Bridger. And we use that internally here at iHerb to uh, help us with our OFAC compliance. We do business in a lot of foreign countries and we had a hard time maintaining our own list of like banned nationals, uh, banned countries and all those things with how it changes from time to time. And then a lot of the names we were having trouble with matching the, the correct names because you know names could be, multiple people can have the same name. Uh, and we have been using you guys successfully to to navigate those waters as far as our compliance goes in those territories. But all that being said, you guys have joined the trend of biometrics and having a product offering in biometrics. Mm -hmm. And I think that when a lot of people, if you think biometrics, we all think of movies where they scan your retina to get into the vault or some sort of thumbprint situation to get in. And that that is some of it. Um, I think that there's other forms and I think that like you and I will talk about this probably in the next couple of minutes here about like how certain types of, of biometrics is becoming more the norm, whether that's the hard biometrics, but we wanted to kind of talk about this thing called behavioral biometrics. And mm -hmm. if you could, to you, what does behavioral biometrics mean? So I think the easiest definition is looking at the way someone interacts with something else, right? So in this situation that we provide behavioral biometrics is how someone interacts with their device. Um, and just kind of going back just a little bit, you mentioned two different types of products that we um, focus on or that we offer. Um, one would be an email edge solution. And we consider that to fall within our data, uh, sorry, our digital uh, risk assessment capabilities. So we offer a number of digital identity intelligence solutions. The two um, that most people know names of is threat metrics and email age. And then we offer a host of physical identity intelligence solutions. Um, from an identity verification standpoint, probably the most um, recognized is Instant ID. Um, for uh, a lot of KYC uh, verification capabilities. Um, and then there's other like, analytic models. For us, behavioral biometrics is not the first time we've been in the general biometric space. And behavioral is very different. We don't almost don't even know if we should be calling it biometrics. So yeah. years ago, we offered fingerprint biometrics. That's a true biometric, right? And we use that um, in terms of ensuring that the same person who came back the second, third, fifth time um, when they're cashing a check or when they were um, taking a proctored test, test for the MCATs or some other type of um, proctored testing facility offering an exam, it was to be able to let you back in if you took a break. So it was scanning the fingerprint um, and then linking that back to an identity. Um, we also uh, had voice biometrics. And then um, we still today offer um, facial recognition um, in combination with document authentication. We kind of made that, um, the reason why we thought behavioral was such an important component in the digital space, um, we first entered it to look at it, is it a human or is it a bot? And we were trying to be mm -hmm. able to make that distinction because so many of our customers were being challenged 
um, in the digital space of trying to discern those two types of entities. And it made a big difference in um, capturing fraud for them. We then moved it a little further past, is it a human or is it a bot? And we started to be able to look at um, are, is the individual that is transacting operating more like a fraudster? Are they navigating on a page more frequent, faster than typical? Um, are they cutting and pasting information that doesn't make sense? That's kind of what we think of from a behavioral standpoint. But we love the idea of being able to offer low friction or no friction um, capabilities, passive um, activities, as well as things that are active. And so that turn and the acquisition of BehavioSec allowed us to also start to look at it from an authentication lens. Yeah, I think a lot of that, that's a really interesting point too, is like the passive versus like the friction, you know. Um, we, we're we doing exercises here internally where, where we have the same, we have some tools that we have developed that do the same thing as far as like trying to discern traffic if it's bot or if it's human. But the yes. way that we sometimes have to do that is like place your finger and hold or some sort of interaction with from the customer. And what we're trying to do is we're starting to look at that more um, with the help of one of our vendors in that particular space is look at the ones that we do have to have a interdiction or some sort of interaction from the customer as more of a false positive versus mm -hmm. being like, oh, we're just saving ourselves, you know, because you, at the end of the day, you could friction everybody if you really wanted to and then be absolutely certain. But the idea is is to only friction the people that are bots or the people that are fake or the fraudsters, not friction the, the good customers, you know? So if we're, if we're identifying and frictioning those people, then we, we probably are falling short. But I think, uh, you know, a lot of the people, as far as like interacting with biometric stuff, you know, I think it's becoming, and we talked about this a little bit on the prep call for this, it's becoming a little more normal than it used to be. I think a lot of times, like when we were talking about this over the last 10 years, people were freaking out about what you're going to have my face in a database somewhere. No, you're not going to. But then Apple goes and puts out face ID to unlock everything on their phone. And like people sign up like, like almost what 90% of America signs up overnight on that. But then at the same time, like the airports, we get so frustrated, like going through security at airports. So then a company called clear pops up and does the same thing, you know, scan through your face off you go, you know, you're authenticated and even Delta flights they're doing when you're walking and boarding onto the plane. Now they're doing scanning your face for international flights too, you know? So I think that like, it's becoming a little more normal and expected stadiums are doing entries now with that. Now they've been talking about doing that for a long time. That's where people really started freaking out. But at the same time, you know, like people are seem to be becoming a little more comfortable with the actual interaction. But I think that to your point of having the passive, it's a lot more interesting when you start to peel back those layers of what you can discern from a device or an interaction or a session, essentially, without having the person really know. And that could be scary, I think, to people that, that figure out that that's happening to them. But let's talk about that. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's less about that the person doesn't know and more about it doesn't interfere in the process. So uh, a couple of things. One is that people have this really negative view of, of friction. Um, friction is not 
a bad word, right? Friction um, should only be applied when appropriate. So we look at risk appropriate friction, number one. Um, so we try to get people to think, to realize that there are times when I would expect friction and be extremely upset, in fact, and terrified of the process if there wasn't some engagement interaction happening. Like, like logging I, into a bank from, from a completely new computer? <laughs> or withdrawing money, right? No, that's if, true. I could withdraw a, a you know, a large sum of money out of my 401k and never have to do anything, I would just not be sure what was really happening behind the scenes. And that's how the general consumer probably thinks, you know, I have a, 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 my sister or somebody else, you know, they would be terrified of that process. But the thing that's different about behavioral is that it is contextual. And so when I think about uh, a physical biometric, like my face, using my face to board a plane as your example, or using my face to unlock my phone, my face doesn't really change. So if somebody was able to somehow um, make a mask, capture my face, do something to be able to um, say that this is Kim's face, it, again, my face doesn't change. Behavioral biometrics is quite different. Every interaction that I do um, uh, the, the types of uh, different uh, companies I go to, I probably have a different behavioral aspect with them. When I'm checking my bank account, I probably am uh, interacting with that um, app or the website different than when I'm on Netflix or when I'm making a purchase on my favorite retailer. Um, so behavioral biometrics is very contextual in nature. Um, it is doesn't have to be linked to any form of PII at all. And so, in fact, it's very, you know, from our standpoint, it has a lot of opportunity to be privacy enhancing. There are times when I just need to be the same user or I need to be a user that's not a bot. Doesn't mean, I, you don't need to know it's Kim, right? I can, I just need to be in a safe spot and it work, and it pairs very well with all the other forms of device risk assessment. So that's why we've paired um, threat metrics with behavioral biometrics, because those two um, allow you to really look at the full digital um, intelligence of, of, a, of a transaction. But it's just very different than a physical biometric. And that's why I think that so many people are hung up on, do you call it behavioral biometrics? Do you yeah. call it behavioral analytics? You know, what, what do you use as the term? But in the end, it's really looking at how you interact with the device. And that gives such tremendous insights um, around the transaction itself. So you guys have acquired this company, but mm -hmm. were you guys already doing anything kind of in this space a little bit before that, like yeah. already? Yeah, so we actually, um, LexisNexis Risk Solutions had created its own behavioral biometric offering and had offered that for over two years and uh, had a significant adoption of the uh, solution. And it was only the fact that as we built out our roadmap on the future capabilities, again, like behavioral biometric authentication, um, where we decided that it would actually, well, timing was just perfect, that behavior set um also had felt that that was the right time for them to perhaps become get acquired. Um, so it just was a, a great timing um, and uh, fit perfectly with our roadmap and allowed us to accelerate our roadmap um, significantly to be able to get the needs uh, addressed by our customers. Now, you had just mentioned just a minute ago, too, that like it you can leverage behavioral sect with threat metrics, too. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm those things, they they play together then. So can you talk a little bit about like how those two things work together? Yeah, so behavioral biometrics alone 
should probably not be used alone, actually, right? Because again, it's context. And so I think that a lot of uh, offerings for behavior biometrics do some lightweight form of device and digital assessment. And so again, we're taking our our robust capabilities um, of threat metrics and using the same JavaScript. Um, So from a deployment standpoint, it's it's, it's very easy to deploy one set of JavaScript that allows you to then assess the risk of the device, um, the digital insights that we get through our digital identity network and layer that with behavioral biometrics, which we have seen um, gives a significant lift in being able to detect fraud. And more importantly than just detecting fraud, I think is also ensuring that your good customers can go through it easier. So um, trying to reduce some of the um, unnecessary friction in the process for uh, your, your returning customers um, and safer transactions. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I've tried to drive it home on this particular show and then even on my panels is that a lot of us that are that are in this space, we are always looking at these customers through the lens of like, what are they up to? What are they trying to steal? And I think we do lose sight that the vast majority of the customers are good customers that are just trying to buy That's something right. and move along or interact or start a TV show or transfer something. You know, they're trying to do something legitimate. You know, and we're only seeing this this very small percentage, even sometimes a fraction of a percentage of people that are that are up to something other than that. And you don't want to try and solve for the few impacting the majority. And I think like so so some of the stuff that I've seen, like in, in the behavioral space, you know, and I'm sure you guys do the same thing is like really trying to to make. And I know threat metrics does it is like this persona thing where they're trying to kind of get like a snapshot of of a, of a person to know that they're a legitimate person. Like, so how they interact with sites, like you said earlier, how fast they click through things, how they're holding their phone, is it plugged in, is it charging? Those sorts of, of things right. that like look at, you know, like that that can go into if it's a legitimate customer. Cause if it's sitting down flat on the ground, it's plugged in and it's typing really fast, you know, it's probably not a legitimate customer, you know? But at the same time, how I hold my phone when I'm sitting on the same couch every night, looking at the same websites every night, like that interaction for me, if they're looking at my session, should match if you're using these these computers and these in these these passive biometric situations, behavioral biometrics, where to show like, yeah, you know, this is what he normally does at six o'clock on a Friday night. You know, he's not out drinking. He's sitting watching Justified reruns over here on FX, you know, like something like that, which I think is it, it goes a long way in in identifying because for so many years we had we had been through this device ID thing, which threat metrics did exceedingly well. And then their rules engine, which threat metrics still does exceedingly well, but putting these parameters on how our customers, we want them to interact with the site, how we expect them to interact with the site. And when they do something different, what happens, but that can be kind of static, you know? And then we went through this next evolution where we were like dynamically scoring transactions based on certain, certain, some of the criteria I just mentioned, but I think bringing in, you need you need kind of a combo like you just said like you i know that like behavior could be bought as a standalone or combined with threat metrics and like you said you know it, it probably shouldn't be used like like to, as your your stand-up single fraud engine because you need to put so certain parameters on people and then do the behavioral in the middle of that to get a full snapshot of what people are doing i think a lot of it i'm going on a big long thing here yeah. is is a lot of like what we had done for a a decade plus was just look at the checkout. Like, what are they doing at checkout? And we've been trying to move authentication earlier in the process. Like, 
when they register, is this really, does this information match? But there's that middle part, which I think a, a vast majority of e-commerce people, especially don't do well, is what are they doing in session? What are they doing before, after they register, but before they check out? Are they going to like the, the, the account details page to steal information, you know, but what are they doing? Like what, what, what actions are they taking? What, what movements are they doing that you can really determine earlier in the process? If we even want to let them get to checkout, because you get all these bots going through your website, they're like holding inventory. So things look like they're sold out when they're not really sold out. And it could create all sorts of other problems downstream. Like the earlier you can detect if someone's a threat or not is better. So yeah. Do you have any opinions about all that? Well, that was a lot. Um, it was. But the, the, <laughs> the one thing I would just say is that behavioral biometrics is not a surveillance tool. And so the reason why I bring Ooh. that up is that where customers, so in some of the you know examples you were given, it almost, you know, made me feel like it was um, monitoring throughout the transaction. And that is not how behavioral biometrics, at least our behavioral biometrics works. Our customers consciously make, consciously make a decision on where they want to place um, the assessment because um, a lot of people are concerned about what is it, you know, it, is it monitoring too much? And the answer is it's only taking a look where you need it to. Interesting. Um, the biggest area of fraud, um, the highest fraud rates still exist at new account open for, for all, almost every customer, right? And so account takeover is a big issue and, you know, logins yep. and, and payment fraud, but the number one area from a, from a fraud rate standpoint is still at new account opening. And there's not a lot that you know about an individual, you can start to assess their PII if they are providing it. And we are strong advocates of only ask for the information you need. Um, so we believe greatly in data minimization principles. Um, so, and then there are, again, a lot of transactions that many of our customers do that are okay if they're anonymous. They just wanna make sure it's yeah. just a, a safe environment. And so behavioral biometrics, we've made it modular in nature so that customers can combine that with other solutions if they don't use threat metrics. I'm not sure why somebody wouldn't, but there are many competitors in the space and, and they're all very good. So I'm not gonna um, say anything there, but we've made it so that it can be modular and used with, um, with threat metrics, with other solutions, but that assessment from a digital standpoint is very important. Um, then if somebody wants to layer behavioral biometrics in other parts of the flow, um, account change is one area that gets overlooked, pa yeah. password resets, those kind of things. Um, that makes a lot of sense. We've tried to use analytic models to make it easier to see that it's Jordan over and over again. So we only need a few interactions if they're long enough to be able to say, this is how Jordan behaves. Um, if the interactions are much shorter, it might take a few more interactions to build that profile so that it can be used for authentication purposes. But you don't have to use behavior biometrics for authentication. Being able to use it as a risk signal um, is probably the most common way companies yeah. use behavioral. And it's really, again, is this person operating in a way that makes me concerned about a, a process, right? Are they operating because they're they're pasting phone numbers, they're navigating too quickly on the page, um, they're doing things. We even have customers that leverage behavioral biometrics and trying to detect if a scam is occurring. And scams are probably one of the top issues that are, that are talked about with our customers um, right now because it's so difficult um, 
since it's the legitimate consumer, the, the legitimate customer that's involved, um, but they could be doing things under duress or just yeah. kind of normal behavior. And so we can combine the fact that they are on an active call and we and they're also navigating on their page in a, in a way that might not be as normal to say, just maybe ask them a few additional questions because they might be but they might be coached right now and this doesn't seem like a normal behavior. Yeah, so I just think it's like a thing is, are you on the phone right now? Is someone <laughs> telling you to send this money? <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, I just think there's a lot of future, a lot of exciting things for the future for, for behavioral. Um, more and more people are more comfortable with it. And like you said earlier in the, in the conversation, um, you know, we're, we're seeing this in our data biometrics in general throughout our lives being used. And so I think people are, are, are becoming more accustomed to, to leveraging um, how I interact um, in a process. I think that um, this sort of thing, this behavioral biometrics is going to be key in our quote, passwordless future as the world tries to transition to pass keys. I know we keep hearing that it's coming one of these days, but you basically aren't going to get a successful pass key universe without having some sort of biometric interaction for the mm -hmm. authentication piece. Like it's just, it's just, you can't. But I think you you had a really, really, really good point there. Um, a couple of things in that, which was like, you kind of got to know what you're selling and what you need. And like you said, you know, never ask for more than you really need, you know, like does my fitness pal need my phone number? Does it need my social security number? Definitely not, you know, but if I'm extending credit to somebody, some of those things might be a little more important, you know, but uh, so you could put behavioral sec on each individual thing. So if I wanted to have it like ad account registration or then, then again, could I do it a second time um, at like a Ooh. change details page or like the password reset? I think that a That's lot right. of people don't like, and you, you hit the nail on the head. It's like new account creations. This is something that I think has been overlooked for far too long. We were so concerned about fraud transactions happening, guest checkout transactions, those are one thing. And then ATOs we had a year ago or 10 years ago, and then now they're back again and they're back, they're worse than ever. But this mm -hmm. new account registrations, I think that people really need to be worried about a little more because not only like is it people trying to do things like hold inventory, make things look like they're sold out, but then the promo code abuse alone, like new customer acquisition promo code abuse, is massive right now. Like anybody that's listening to this, if your website offers a, a deep discount for new customers and you have any sort of way to tie individual multiple accounts together into one, just do a, a, a quick look in your system of how many people are abusing your promo codes. I bet you you're losing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of dollars in promo code abuse happening on your site right now. So I think that people need to start paying a little more attention to it because you might be losing like 1.5 million in chargebacks a year for any decent enterprise level merchant, but you might be losing $10 million in lost margin just on promo code abuse from like the same 10 people, you know, like these are things that people need to look at. <laughs> and that is not even one that I would say goes back to behavior biometrics as much as it is saying, is it the same, is the same device going across multiple accounts? Um, is there you know, the same email address. I mean, there's so many ways that you can try to look at promo code abuse. And look, I'm a girl that likes a coupon. So I, I yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't ready to use them properly, right? So I think that um, absolutely, a, a lot of the 
the digital risk signals that you can get um, will help tremendously in promo code abuse or in um, account takeover risk. And while I said that new account opening has the highest fraud rate, um, the highest fraud volume definitely is gonna happen with logins just because there's so many more login transactions there than there are account opening transactions. Yeah, and like I, I have a, a thing coming up that I'm doing next month, a little live talk about like the what what people are after on ATOs now. Like I think for so long people thought that ATOs were just going after stored credentials on the account to try and make purchases. No, it's like what's stored on the account, what if the information is on the account, just like even like address information, email information, um, just getting aged accounts. Like ATOs are still massive. And you'll see, like if you look at login traffic, you'll see when your, your sites are getting hit and blasted and all that. But it's just like the ATOs now are so much more coordinated and so much more available given all the breaches that are happening. But the the, the value of accounts is, is it's reward points. It's tickets stored on the account you know it's it's hilton points it's uh rewards dollars on accounts you know there's so many things and it's legitimacy if that account has you know 10 years of history buying five things a month from like a, a typical e-commerce reseller and then all of a sudden you get ato'd in there you swap that credit card out real quick to some stolen one and just rip it for a hundred thousand dollars it might not look that much different to uh, the regular fraud tools but if you had something like a watching the the behavior i guess on that you could probably pull that one out a little bit more you know and i think the risk signals like i've used um loose behavioral tools before and just i just consume the signals and i consume them into like a tool like threat metrics <laughs> and then wrote rules around the signals that were provided to me and it was it was pretty pretty useful at the end of the day yeah i mean you know we even see trends where um the hot topic becomes synthetic identity fraud um, the fear of you know people or the concern of people mixing together um, real legitimate information with kind of like this Frankenstein approach to data where you just kind of you know put together a lot of other fake pieces of data. Um, synthetic identity fraud is is a real concern, but for a while it was a little um, less focused on because account takeover fraud had you know it was, it was much easier just to assume an existing account than to have to create one from scratch. Um, now we're hearing more account takeover fraud concerns again, as well as first party fraud, um, oh. where the legitimate user is oh. the one that is actually, or you know, the real person is denying um, that they actually had opened the account. So uh, concerns around non-repudiation or how, how we can help in non-repudiation is a big area that we're hearing a lot about. Um, how do you make sure that the, the person, when we know it's their behavior, or it's their face that actually, you know, unlocked the phone or did, you know, did something. Yeah. How do you deal with that? So that's so funny. I mean, it, this is this is a story for another or a topic for another day. But I have been on a war path lately about this like identity token situation. Like, how can we like what are the repercussions for a person that gets caught in their in their life? Because like there's coming out of COVID all these people that were doing this first party fraud, whether it be like just claiming a fraud chargeback or calling the the vendor and saying, I never got it. Even though we have a photo of it sitting on their porch, you know, like buyer's this, remorse. This, it was buyer's yeah, remorse. I didn't really yeah. need that treadmill, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Now, now the gyms are back open again. Well, I don't need this thing taken up my garage, but this liar buyer stuff. And it's like this moral gray area where they don't feel like it's, it's as wrong 
as it's same thing like we have like all these these smashing grabs are pretty much like all over like the the uh la news right now and if you go into the comments people are like oh the stores have insurance what does it matter stores have insurance stores have insurance and it's like these things matter and it's like when people are are buying stuff from websites and they're like just charge it back it's like ah they, they make billions of dollars what does it matter if like you know that treadmill is is one of them you know but it's this moral gray area that like i don't I don't know how we're going to solve for this because the people that wind up holding the bag at the end of the process is either going to be the merchant or the issuing bank, you know, on these, some of these liability ship 3D secure situations, not really usually the end customer, the end customer usually gets away with it. And well, not for long, right? Because eventually all of the rates of everything goes up. And I mean, that's the only way that you can cover it. So Moral gray area, it, I don't see how it's gray at all. I mean, maybe I'm just too it's black. Wrong. And white to but to it, them, it's, it's a wrong. moral gray area. Yeah, no, it's stealing. It's literally, it's no, like charging okay. back that treadmill that you have just because like you don't want to pay for it anymore is no different right. than walking into that same store and stealing it right out of the showroom, right. putting it in the back of your truck and driving home. That's Zero right. difference there. But like, I feel like we have, there's something's going to have to give eventually that, that like, if we can prove it, no matter what, and then we, winning a chargeback is one thing. But like, I want more, <laughs> like I want, I want more liability to fall onto these consumers as a like nuclear deterrent as to don't file false claims. Like there has to be something, I don't know. Maybe anybody in the comments or something can, can come up with something there, like not chopping hands off, please people. Let's be like, <laughs> let's have it be like actual economic damage versus like physical damage. But uh, there needs to be some sort of liability swing uh, back to the consumers. There has to be a disincentive to lie, in my opinion. Well, yeah, I, I think that one thing is that it might it might not happen a lot to a particular company with the same individual. But this is where I'm seeing this more contributory consortium model kind of approach, because I pro if I have done it once, I've probably done it another time with another company. So being able to make these um, virtual blacklist <laughs> or yeah. at least sharing known fraudulent information is another reason why we try to focus heavily on enabling um, our customers and in, and in different industries and even across different geographies to be able to share known fraud information. Um, and that would be a great example. If I, you know, if somebody has uh, done what considers what we consider to be a first party, party fraud issue at retailer X, they may have done it at retailer Y and at a logistics yeah. company and another area as well, and maybe even a financial institution. So starting to see that pattern is what makes a big difference. That's excellent. So as we begin to wrap up here today, uh, this has been a very fun conversation. You and I had talked about three trends that you see coming down the pipe um, as far as like the LexisNexis risk solutions area. Uh, would you like to talk about those? <laughs> Oh, sure. Um, I think that one area is is this continued need to try to um, have as good a customer experience as possible while um, keeping fraud risk down. And I think this is going to, you know, continue to stick with us. Customers are constantly trying to balance the, these these two these two areas. Um, so that's going to be true in 2024 as well, right? Trying to figure out how do I make that balance. And we've seen some interesting shifts. Um, there have been many times when at the table has been a marketing leader that is making a lot of the decisions. 
And we've mm. seen a lot of people say, move over. We got to now have, the, you know, some uh, a fraud leader leading this discussion again um, and, and vice versa. So we're going to constantly see that shift. That's probably number one that we're seeing. How do you balance customer experience? That, that's an excellent one, especially like the marketing people that resonates with me so much because we like, I love my marketing team. We're brilliant. Our customer acquisition is, is brilliant. But every once in a while, they're like, let's do one of these. And I'm like, it's going to get ripped, guys. I'm like, nah. And then immediately it's getting ripped. And I'm like, see, told you. So I've, I've been shoehorning myself back into the room uh, when all those conversations so we can make sure we cover up all of the, the risk vectors that are probably going to happen. <laughs> The second one, scam activity, I think is going to continue to increase. Um, and um, there's a big push right now in consumer education, which I, I think is great, but it's so hard. Um, but just continuing to watch the evolution of scams and how, I guess, how well uh, actually consumers do um, listen to the, 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 the great principles that so many companies are trying to give out. I mean, you probably have been receiving lots of emails from your your financial institutions and your top retailers on just looking out for scams. But that's an area that's going to continue to be strong in 2024. Excellent. Yeah, I did a, a, a prediction thing probably like in March of this year that was saying like consumer education is going to be the big, the, the next, the, one of the next big, big, big things. You know, you see like the Zelle, it's like, it, it, just like I joked earlier about like pop up a thing. Are you on the phone right now? Are you about to send money? You know, Zelle has all those things. Do you know this person? Are you sure you know this person before you send the money? You know, and so definitely education. I I do. I get I get the emails all the time, and I just got one from the IRS the other day too. It's like don't like unless we send you snail mail, like don't fall for it. Don't send anything, you know. And it's just that's we have to constantly stay on top. Saving people from themselves is what I call it. You know, at the end of the day. <laughs> And then, you know, I just touched on, I think the third one, like we had kind of talked about was kind of like faster payments and, and what's going to happen with that too. That's right. And, That's the third the, one. So yeah, payments, you know, as we, you know, think people have gotten very comfortable with peer-to-peer uh, -peer payments. Oh. Now if we think about institutions being able to do faster payments in their processes, what does it look like and how do you protect against that? Um, how do you leverage both the physical information uh, and the digital information to be able to make payments um, just safer in general? So that's going to be something we spend a lot of time on. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's still some some questions out there about like, because they still haven't settled the fully on like the, the liability and where it's going to land. Obviously, it's going to, they want to try and push it on issuers, which then causing issuers financial harm is going to slow down those faster payments. But putting tools like behavior and biometrics around those sessions might still enable those uh, those payments to be sent fast. So. Yeah. And I know you only said three, but the fourth thing I'll be is just oh, yeah, let's just pay close attention to the regulatory landscape. I think there's going to be a lot of things happening at the state level, um, at the federal level in the U.S., and then, you know, throughout different countries um, as we look at uh, issues from privacy on and, and how that impacts um, the decisions we make and the liability decisions um, that end up uh, as a result of it. I keep seeing like, you know, as we, as we finished right here, like I keep like this liability is a word that as, as I've recorded episodes and gone through the liability is, is the one word that keeps coming up. And I think that there's something brewing in, in liability and where the liability is, because for so long, like merchants have been over and just take, been taking these, these chargebacks in these losses. in. they started to push back with 3d secure, you know, I think that like, they're just, there's there's a reckoning coming hopefully on where liability lands at the end of the day and whether that be with consumers whether that be with the like, issuers whether that be with networks something something's got to give and that's got to come through through regulation you know 
That's right. And so I think that's the gray area right now. Yeah. The <laughs> regulation like gray area. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, thank you so much for coming on my show. Um, thank you for giving me your time. I know you're extremely, extremely busy. I, I am ever so thankful of, of you doing this for me. And thank you for sharing your thoughts on, on behavioral biometrics, on behavioral sect, LexisNexis risk solutions in general. Uh, I always love talking to you. You have such great insights in what's happening in the actual risk area. Uh, so thank you. Yeah. Gordon, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. I hope I can do it again. I hope you can too. I will put links to to all of the the things that we talked about today in the, the episode description. Uh, LexisNexis, everybody knows threat metrics, everybody knows email age. Now you know behavior sack. Uh, we'll we'll make sure that uh, we can get people going your way. And then I'll put your LinkedIn in there too if people want to ever LinkedIn and reach out to you. I know you're busy, but you know, it's the right thing to do. <laughs> I can make time. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Once again, thank you so much and we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to visit our incredible friends and sponsor Spec. Get your holiday team ready with full visibility into the customer journey all season long using their patented no-code orchestration platform and be ready for whatever comes your way with the ability to collect data, call third-party APIs, build logic and workflows, all with the ability to take action anywhere in the entire customer journey. Visit www.specprotected.com to schedule your demo and learn more. Thank you.